Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Roland Clark, and I'm here today on the New Books Network talking to Klaus Buchenau, who's Professor of the History of Southeastern and Eastern Europe at the University of Regensburg. He's a specialist on social linguistics, the history of religions, resource allocation, state distrust, and the history of corruption. Um, so, Klaus, well, this thank is you for a... inviting me. Oh, our pleasure. So, Klaus, this is a book about a corruption scandal in interwar Yugoslavia, but it's based on a really close reading of archives that are held mostly in Regensburg, where you work. Can you tell us how you came across these archives and what you've done with them? Yes, for sure. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, you must imagine that um, uh, the um, Tornon Taxis family has its, has its seat in Regensburg, and Regensburg is a small town, and they own um, a very large castle uh, right in the middle of town, and they are basically the, the richest and most visible family in town, which is um, uh, a place, um, you know, which is very much face-to-face -face communication, so people know each other, and, um, and they have always tried to have good um you know, relationships with all the factors, among them also with the university. So how I came across their archive was that um, uh, this family, they give stipends to um, to students to visit their archives and do research on the archives. This is a long tradition has been going on for, for, for decades. And um, a colleague of mine <clears throat> had two doctoral students working in their archives and receiving a stipend from the family. And um, <clears throat> so there were certain relations between the historians at the university um, and the family of Tornotaxis. And um, on one day, I just decided to um, do a seminary right in the archive, which is located in the castle, which is a very beautiful place. Um, and I found this would be a good experience for the students. Um, and then, you know, we came across these... Um, um, uh, Yugoslav um, uh, documents, um, and we didn't really know much about it, um, uh, though there were some, you know, general um, uh, uh, books and, and, and articles uh, where we knew that the, that the family in the 19th century, um, they bought vast um, lands in, um, in Eastern Europe, uh, in what is today Poland, Czechoslovakia, and also Yugoslavia. But um, <clears throat> well, going through these um, uh, parts on uh, on the Yugoslav possessions, uh, we sort of soon understood that there was something with corruption, something going on. Uh, but the things were so complicated, and we had one semester in the archive, and then you know the seminar was over, and the students just had to get get their grades and so on. But in the end, I promised them, if you could do good work, we're going to write an article. Um, uh, on uh, this case as a corruption case. Um, well, the, the students really tried hard and then I tried to put it together and try to combine it also with some with Yugoslav documents since I'm a historian of Southeastern Europe. Went to Belgrade, went to Zagreb. Um, but then I understood the thing, the thing is far too complicated. We, it cannot be done like this. It, it must, <clears throat> I must make a whole study out of it just to understand what this was about. Um, and this is how I decided to, to make it a book project when the pandemic started in 2020. Um, 
I was so lucky to have had the all the bulk of the research done. So I could just sit down in these eternal lockdowns um, and um, and write the book. This is it. Did you ever get the article published? Well, um, no, um, but I'm going to publish an article now I, after I have published the book. This is the way it usually is done. Because if you make articles um, uh, in connection with book projects, you can do two things. Either you just um, take a very small section of the of the book issue and write on this the article. This you can do also in advance prior to publishing the book. Um, but if you want to write an article on the whole thing, you can only do it seriously after having published the book. And this is something I understood during the process because having, if I if I if I had published the article, let's say in 2019, it would have been full of mistakes. Mm, you've got to get the research done first. Yeah. Yes. Um, the Thurman Taxis family—they're the main drivers of the story. And they had large estates in the region that becomes Yugoslavia after the First World War. But then they suddenly found those estates being taken away from them. So what's the problem they're trying to solve in this book? Well, they're trying to solve the problem um, of being dispossessed. Um, this dispossession um, was justified by uh, this new state of Yugoslavia, which considered itself a post-imperial national state, though it was not really a national state, um, which acted on behalf of um, populations which had been subjugated socially and politically for centuries in, in, the, in the empires. So um, Yugoslavia took sort of a revenge um, on the former imperial elites. Um, and you, the Turner Taxi family was in close connection to the Habsburgs, which also helped them to acquire these vast lands. Um, so uh, Yugoslavia used like um, uh, two um, political um, themes in order to 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 drive this expropriation. One was um, the reparations, since um, uh, turn on taxes was. Um, at least by the Yugoslavs, considered to be a German family. Uh, so um, uh, German uh, individuals <laughs> could be taken responsible for the war damages taken by Germany, uh, caused by Germany uh, and were liable to pay with their own property. Though there was a lot of legal discussions about this, which I also write about. But um, expropriation as uh, reparation, this was one issue. And the other issue was um, expropriation for the cause of agrarian reform, because Yugoslavia considered itself to be, as I already said, uh, um, an uh, an emanation on or an instrument of the formerly subjugated social groups and ethnic groups. They had to do something for the for the Slavic peasants, um, and handing over uh, the um, landed property of the former imperial elites of the nobles. Uh, to these peasants uh, was something that was extremely popular um, and necessary for Yugoslavia to do to legitimate their 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 own rule um, in front of the populace. So um, both things uh, went on simultaneously. They were um, also frequently intermingled. So acts of expropriation could be justified as reparations or as you know necessary for the agrarian reform or for both. And um, 
In the beginning, uh, you was uh, the Turnon Taxis family or the Prince of Turnon Taxis, Albert, did not, not accept anything of this. So um, he remained on the position for years that uh, basically uh, things were had been well regulated prior to the First World War uh, and that the property rights should not be changed at all. Um, but of course, Prince Albert, he lives in Germany, so he uses agents as intermediaries to negotiate with the Yugoslav authorities. Why, why does he need agents and how does he work with them? Well... <clears throat> As you already said, um, he lived in Germany, in Regensburg, uh, and he had never been to Yugoslavia or to Croatia during his whole life, uh, which at a certain point also became like a, a, a psychological problem for those who defended his rights or tried to defend his rights in Yugoslavia. Um, so he didn't know anyone there personally. Um, he would not have known how to intervene. Um, and also, mm, there was always the fear that you know, mm, if the no, if the politician is seen with a noble directly, this would have had repercussions on the reputation of the politician, and that he is accepting outright lobbyism of elites, uh, of inimical elites, and it would also have had repercussions on the uh, on the reputation of the prince himself. And by the way, also on the dignity. So he was very much of a grand seigneur uh, who didn't really like to do things himself and considered it even indecent to do so. So the agents were those who possessed uh, the knowledge how to do things and the contacts how to do things. Um, and of course, so the family gives money to the agents who then use it to bribe people in Yugoslavia, uh, which you detail in, um, in great yeah. detail. Um, was bribery the only thing that they tried? No, this was by far not the only thing. Um, they basically tried everything they could. Mm. Uh, they tried to influence uh, public opinion uh, via um, people who were sympathetic of them mm, in the Yugoslav press. They tried to... Mm, uh, drive their to 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 promote their interests via um, lawsuits within Yugoslavia, and also via um, arbitration courts, which were a part of the Versailles of the Paris Treaty system, uh, where um, uh, in each of these um, treaties, the, um, these arbitration courts were foreseen uh, to deal with. Um, with cases of conflict. Um, and they were stuffed with um, uh, um, representatives of the two conflicting states and also of third parties. In this case, um, there was one arbitration court, which was the Yugoslav-Austrian one. And there were representatives from Yugoslavia and Austria and also from the Turn and Taxis side. Uh, and later in the 1930s, there was an um, arbitration court uh, um, um, between Yugoslavia, Germany, and the Turner Taxis side. Um, did I forget anything besides these lawsuits, the bribery, uh, and the arbitration court, and the press? Um, I think that's it. Yeah, that's they're the main ones I remember. Um, one of your most colorful agents that Thurman Taxis used was a lawyer named Jakov Chelebonovich. 
how does he use this whole situation to his own advantage? Like, what's in it for the agent? Well, Yakov Celebonovic was um, a lawyer based in Belgrade, and he was um, of Jewish descent. Not only of Jewish descent, he also became in the 1930s um, um, a Jewish functionary. Functionary. Mm. That is, he was elected as the president of the Jewish community in Belgrade, and he was their greatest sponsor. Um, and he came from a rather modest uh, Sephardic family um, and had um, con made his first connection with the House of Turn and Taxes prior, prior to the First World War, uh, where he defended Turn and Taxes' interests in connection to a sugar factory located in Serbia. Um, so Yakov Celebonovic <clears throat> um, promised to turn on taxes that he could save the property. Um, and he promised also a solution how to do this, that is to um, uh, create um, a Yugoslav company, which was to become the um, former, for, formal, but also real owner of the forest. Um, and within this um, stock company, um, uh, the Turner Taxes side would have to own the majority of the stocks and also uh, keep in this way can keep control over the company. That is um, becoming uh, a national company, causing much less provocation and you know um, seemingly inscribing to this nationalizing paradigm of the Yugoslav government. And. Um, well, <clears throat> his idea was that it was not enough just to um, create this company, uh, but in order to um, um, uh, free this um, uh, this property from the sequestration, because everything was put under sequestration in 1990, uh, um, 1919, that is under state administration. Um, um, the prince still remained the formal owner, um, but he had lost concrete control and the sequestration looked just like a transitory state towards the total expropriation. So he was um, in the 20s afraid that this might happen. So um, Chelebonovich offered that he will fight um, um, for the desequestration, that, that the property be given back to Turin Taxes, and that he will have to do a lot of lobbying um, and therefore, they concluded a contract uh, which promised um, to Chelebonovic um, honorarium of 25 million diners, which was at that time almost 2 million Swiss francs, um, but only in case of success. Mm. Success meant that um, Yakov Chelebonovic uh, reaches the desequestration, but also uh, that he reaches um, uh, a um, remuneration uh, and a rep of, of, of two other things. That is, <laughs> Turn and Taxes um, had uh, in 1919, through a decision of the Minister of the Agrarian Reform, uh, lost already 20% of, of its property um, directly to the Agrarian Reform. That is not only that the whole property was sequestrated, but out of this property, uh, twenty percent were directly handed over uh, 
to um, to peasant communities via the state administration. Um, and this was still a little bit provisional, but it was already something that had been decided on at the very beginning of the Yugoslav um, exist of the existence of Yugoslavia. So also uh, Celebonis, which was was the one who was expected to reach um, uh, a um, uh, how is this in English? Um, 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 oh, I don't know how this is English. Um, <clears throat> that this decision was uh, to be um, uh, lifted. And then there was one more thing, uh, and this was about um, mm, a railway sleepers. That is, you was, uh, in this large property, uh, there was an oak forest around Lekenik, which is not so far away from Zagreb. Um, and also 1919-1920, the Ministry of Railroads said, okay, we need uh, to repair all these um, destroyed railroads, which uh, had fallen mm, uh, under the attack of... Um, you know, various troops. And let's just take the property of this German who is going to lose anything anyway. So um, uh, they cut, um, you know, um, oaks uh, within one year that were um, supposed to be cut only in, you know, within 15 years. So there was a, a, a radical destruction of a, a vast oak forest. So for this Taxes wanted compensation. And there was also the task of Celebonovic to reach this compensation for the Lekanik Ox. So three things, reach a desequestration of the whole property, um, um, to have uh, the decision on the expropriation of 20% uh, for the agrarian reform lifted, and um, to reach a monetary compensation uh, for the for the destroyed Lekanic Oaks. So <clears throat> the honorarium in case of success was uh, 25 million diners, which was, um, I don't know, there is no um, real uh, scientific information uh, on which honoraria were paid to lawyers at that time. But as one can see from the reactions of the contemporaries who got to know about this honorarium, that was never, never really widely publicized. But there were lots of people who knew it, uh, and they all considered this to be an, an anomaly, something that had never happened before, uh, that a lawyer gets um, uh, such a honorarium. So <clears throat> the idea... Um, on uh, both sides who concluded this contract, that is Toron Taxis and Celebonovic, was that this was uh, a honorar honorarium which uh, Celebonovic should use mm, uh, in a way so as to reach his own, uh, well, the goals um, of the contract. That is, not put it all in his own pockets, but use it for uh, people doing lobbyism um, and also for people uh, who would use uh, this uh, part of the honorarium uh, to directly bribe um, members of the Yugoslav government or also higher officials. Sorry. So what really happened in this story, what I write about is that Yakov Celebonovic um, uh, constantly 
says, well, I have already reached success or I haven't reached full success yet, but I already need parts of the honorarium. There are so many people working for me in various Yugoslav ministries and they all need to be paid. If we don't pay, pay them, so certain bribes cannot be given and certain decisions will not be given, taken by the government. Um, and um, in reality, many of these claims mm, showed to be false that um, uh, bribes were not paid, but rather uh, that um, parts of the honorarium were um, given by uh, Regensburg to Celebonovic and Celebonovic uh, took it or took parts of it in order to build himself a large villa. Well, this sort of became informally known to the Belgrade public uh, so that the villa uh, constructed by Celebonovic in the late 1920s uh, was called um, uh, the um, um, uh, Villa Turnantaxis. Um, so I find this really interesting because bribery is obviously illegal. Uh, how did Turnantaxis feel about using bribery? What sort of risks did giving bribes raise for them as foreigners and Germans? Well, um, first of all, we must um, be clear about that they absolutely knew what happened with their money. So they were, they, 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 they um, consciously went into bribery because um, Celebonovic, but later also other agents who followed him in the 1930s openly told the House of Turner Taxes, we need this or that, part of our honorarium, because we need to bribe right now. If we don't do it, we will not be successful. Uh, so first of all, they knew it. And, um, well, they justified themselves um, basically in hindsight, uh, because right from, from those times, um, of the 1920s when the bribe when many briberies happened we do not have so many sources but we have them from the 1930s well they said well everybody was bribing at that time and um, belgrade is an extremely corrupt place uh, everybody does so uh, so we are sort of forced we have no other choice because this state uh, does not respect law in order to bring back law, we need bribery. So we need to break the law in order to bring back law. This is the ba basically the way how they um, uh, justified themselves. And in this way, they were also blaming uh, Balkan culture, um, uh, Serbian elites as part of, of Bal Balkan culture, as something uh, which had forced them to do so. Um in the book, you distinguish between corruption as practice and corruption as a label. What's the difference there? Well, um, uh, the corruption as a practice is something which is uh, the, well, the, a very large part of the book, uh, which is about um, uh, how to bribe um, and um, how to approach somebody to bribe, how to be discreet. Um, and um, well, this is the corruption as a practice. It is the corruption as practice is also about these borders. Where is the border between you know somebody being remunerated for a good service, and where does the bribe begin? Um, while <clears throat> corruption as a label, well, this is um, uh, what appears when uh, Turnan Taxis uh, begins to justify itself for what it has done. Um, 
and this is precisely that you um, use, um, let's say, labels in order to um, to put things into a moral order. And there you have um, uh, societies which are sort of developed and um, are like models for the world. Um, and uh, then you have these societies which are considered to be less developed, even to be primitive or uh, to need uh, to be in need of education. Um, and <clears throat> these societies which are considered inferior, um, they are frequently being labeled as corrupt. So um, using like um, uh, the difference in development between Germany, where Tonotaxis is seated, uh, and Yugoslavia, where the possessions are, um, they use the label of corruption um, as something which they ascribe to the general culture in which they have to work. So that their own acts of corruption then become just a mirror of the so-called primitivity of Yugoslav society. So this corruption as a label is basically um, a strategy uh, to lift the moral blame from oneself and to shift it to somebody else. So what would be wrong in Germany is not wrong in Yugoslavia. Well, from a theoretical standpoint, it should be wrong everywhere. And this was also you know, something which is present in the Tornontaxis sources. But while in Germany, let's say, the reality um, and the anti-corrupt legislation are more or less, um, let's say, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a relationship, um, these things like the, like the, the, the law and the reality do not have much to do with each other in Yugoslavia. Mm. And so what about the Yugoslav officials and politicians who are receiving these bribes? How do they justify themselves? Mm -hmm. um, well, <clears throat> uh, these Yugoslav politicians, uh, in many cases, um, they were never mm, really uh, forced to admit anything. Um, because, you know, in Yugoslavia, um, anti-corruption via courts was extremely weakly developed. In the 1920s, it didn't almost, it was almost inexistent, especially in the cases of the most, you know, biggest corruption scandals. Nothing happened at all. And um, even if um, uh, newspapers wrote that uh, the son of the prime minister is involved, nothing happened about this, neither to the prime minister nor to the son. Um, and this type of... Um, mm, uh, rule, informal rule, also persisted in the 1930s, though in the 1930s, uh, Yugoslavia was more of an organized state, and it also had an authoritarian rule, the so-called so king's dictatorship, uh, which um, tried to profile itself as a as an anti-corruption force. And then they started to have the first anti-corruption litigations, very, very widely publicized. Um, um, and they were basically in the wood industry, which is which is our issue because the turn on taxes properties were forests, basically. <clears throat> but um, these were clearly instruments of selective justice. Uh, that is, um, they were directed uh, towards certain individuals um, which had already fallen 
off from grace of the of the ruling circles uh, and which were punished as an example that sort of Yugoslavia is doing something against corruption. Um, but um, uh, they were never um, directed against, you know, everything that the police found out. For example, you have a police report from 1935, uh, which is very well done um, as a piece of investigation, which involves a lot of Yugoslav politicians. But they were never brought before court. They never came into uh, the um, into a situation where they had to um, to recognize anything. Um, the thing is different with higher officials in the forest administration, because these people were brought to court, were punished, or at least in a disciplinary measure through their own uh, ministry of forestry. But they did justify themselves, and Tornon Taxis justified themselves, them um, as not having taken bribes, but as having giving as as having having given their professional expertise. Um, so um, this was um, justified not as corruption but as service. So. Um, what's the role of a forestry ex forestry expert? Because both the Yugoslav government, who wants to take the land away, and the Thonotaxis people that want to get it back, they're both using forestry experts to testify on their behalf. Yes. Um, the forest experts, first of all, they were a social group um, of people who had studied forestry um, as a science. This is a science which um, comes into being basically in the 19th century. And uh, one of the first uh, centers of this in Central Europe is the University of Munich. And many of um, the forest experts had either studied directly in Munich um, or had been um, uh, students of people who had received their education in Munich. And they were, in the Tornon Taxis case, they were all Yugoslav citizens. Uh, so these forest experts, um, uh, a large part of them worked in this uh, state forestry administration um, uh, on the local level in Croatia uh, and partly also on the central level, but, but rather <laughs> in Croatia itself. And then uh, a part of, of the, these forestry experts also worked for private people. Um, uh, that is for large uh, professional landowners, um, forest owners, such as Tornan Taxis. And there were also these people who received their money uh, first uh, um, uh, uh, from Tornan Taxis, and then they changed, switched over to the state administration or people who simultaneously received a salary from the state, but also honoraria from turn on taxes. Um, so um, these people <clears throat> had to give um, uh, their professional expertise on the state of the forests. In the 1930s, um, a new strategy of the state <clears throat> to um, uh, drive forward the expropriation um, was that uh, Turn on Taxes was, had allegedly um, started to destroy its own forest because they had 
allegedly cut much more than they were supposed to um, so that, um, that the forest could no longer regenerate. Uh, and um, in this case, and this is where the where the war of the of the expertise is started because um, on the one hand, part of the forest experts wrote on behalf of the state, um, showing um, with measurements and photographs and uh, so on uh, that you, uh, you the taxes was sort of a destroyer of the Yugoslav forests and an enemy to ecology and so on. Uh, while on the other hand, other forest experts were showing uh, that uh, torn on taxes um, had done nothing of what it was criticized for um, and that the uh, state expertises were manipulated. So um, basically, from an outsider's uh, standpoint, what I can state is that... Um, um, well, who play who pays for the music also decides on, on, on what is being played. Mm. But uh, today we have no uh, possibility to to decide on what was really true. Uh, so the the, um, the the cases of the forest expertise <clears throat> is something uh, where you can discuss well the limits of the term bribery, um, and I think this is very interesting because. Um, uh, when you look, for example, at, at um, um, Corona policies in various um, of today's modern states, um, on on the way how it was covered by the press, and on the way how various doctors and um, medical experts acted in public, they can also um, come to a conclusion um, that expertise is something that can be. Mm. Oh, that which is very malleable, uh, which is very changeable, and um, when this comes, you know, mm, to the when 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 a public gets conscious of of these kind of things, uh, that an expert or that one expert might say absolutely different things than another expert, then you look into uh, the personal dependencies of this or that person. Then you are back um, at uh, the theme of corruption in a broader sense. Um, that is the conflicts of interest of an expert. This is what makes the the forest expertise, in my view, so actual. And then on top of all this, you've got the peasants, um, the local people who really wanted access to the land and and to use the forest for themselves. How did they try to negotiate? between the forestry experts and the Thurnon taxis and the Yugoslav politicians and the lawyers and well <clears throat> you know the the, the peasants <clears throat> were first of all um, at the end of the set of the first world war um they were agitated they were um angry nervous and they no longer wanted to accept the the form, the, the old order that is Having the grand seigneur, the noble landowner above themselves, and you know, um, serving his interests, uh, being content with uh, what the noble is willing to give, and not charging more—all this absolutely breaks down uh, with the end of the First World War, when a whole order come uh, tumbles down, and when the social pyramid is no longer accepted as such. So. Um, 
the idea that um, uh, the nobles must simply be driven out and that their lands must be di distributed among the peasants is extremely popular. And the Soviet Union is um, maybe the main driving force for also the peasants in Central Europe um, and in Southeastern Europe, that something like this might be possible because the Soviet Union, at least for a certain transitory time, uh, did take the lands of the nobles and just gave, him, gave them to the peasants. So why not charge the same for yourself? <clears throat> um, but um, it, during after like uh, two, three years of a rather revolutionary mood after the First World War, the situation changes because the peasants start to understand that um, the total revolution will not come and they also start to understand that the great idea, the great example for the revolution, the Soviet Union, uh, is beginning to show traits which are not so, which are not so nice, which are also uh, not in the interest of the peasants. Um, so um, then they sit in their villages and they still um, want to get more access to to woods, and they suffer from a social situation where. Um, you know, you have um, an overpopulation of the countryside um, and you have uh, very small plots of land and you have problems where to find pastures uh, for the cattle, for the pigs and so on. You have problems where to find um, um, wood for, um, uh, for construction. Um, uh, of of farmhouse buildings, uh, or for for heating, so the needs are still there. <clears throat> so basically, uh, the peasants um, keep on supporting um, policy poli policies of redistribution, um, and they also put pressure on the Yugoslav politicians uh, not to make compromises with ton and taxes. And this is also why many why so many briberies fail. Um, that it's not difficult to prove the briberies of turn on taxes and their agents. Um, but you see that so many briberies, they, they, they come to nothing, that you um, spend something, but you do not get what you want. You do not get this decision which you want, um, precisely because so many Yugoslav politicians are afraid um, uh, that um, acting for a bribe against a peasant uh, which is the main social group which legitimizes the existence of the very existence of Yugoslavia is something which makes you lose elections. Um, so <clears throat> the peasants <clears throat> sit in their villages and from time to time they uh, gather around, you know, um, uh, rural intellectuals which try to... Um, form them into a political power to articulate their, their collective interests. Um, but um, also the various um, uh, parties of interest, they start to understand that they also need to win over uh, the, these peasants. So in the 1920s, turn on taxes mm, does not work with the peasants at all. They consider these revolutionaries in 1918, 1919 to be just dangerous people who, um, uh, to who threaten the lives of their of the Toronto Texas foresters, um, and um, they'd rather call for um, something like authoritarian measures 
in order to 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 put these peasant peasants back in place. But uh, as um, uh, the pre uh, as they understand, as Turner Texas understands that the pre-1918 social order will no longer be re-established, they also, and as they get more and more, you know, uh, disappointed with um, uh, their bribe, with the results of their briberies in Belgrade, which frequently come to nothing, uh, they understand that they must work with the peasants. Um, that uh, to reach compromises, Mm. Uh, there must be created like a low a local momentum which is more favorable for uh, for the houses turn in taxes so they also they send their representatives into the villages to talk to them um to to the local peasants and to mm, uh, to find out which kind of deal they would also accept and this is something we see in the 1930s but at the same time, there is another thing which is also interesting from the position of the peasant, peasants. Um, because when we talk about expropriations, we must understand that the state and its like social and political goals were never the only factor. But that the Yugoslav state itself was deeply permitted um, by networks of power and uh, also by, capital, by, 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 by monetary interests. So um, the expropriation of turn on taxes um, was something extremely interesting uh, for business circles close to the Yugoslav government um, who frequently wanted together with, uh, let's say, investors from Great Britain um, or also from Central Europe to get an access to these woods, drive turn on taxes out and then get a possibility to, to cut the woods yourself. So these representatives um, of such business networks, which sort of hid behind the Yugoslav state policy, they also went into the villages uh, and made uh, promises to the to the to, to, to the peasants that they will get this and that if they only um, give their voice against turn on taxes. So uh, in this sense, the the, the peasants were ad addressed by various sides by let's say pro socialist um, uh, politicians uh, by Yugoslav, um, uh, pro-Yugoslav um, and um, businessmen, and also uh, by the turn, turn and taxes side. And each of them tried to uh, tell them that if you are on our side, you'll get something good for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, so this story goes backwards and forwards right throughout the 1920s and most of the 1930s. But then eventually international geopolitics catches up and completely changes the playing field. Uh, what is it that happens in the late 1930s that rewrites the rules of bribery and corruption in Yugoslavia? Well, basically what resolved the whole case, um, um, finally in 1939, um, is the German influence, the, 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 the influence of the Third Reich, um, which finally just uses its um, economic power and political power, which it has gained during the 1930s over Yugoslavia, uh, to press um, Yugoslav politicians uh, to make a compromise with, um, with torn on taxes. Um, it's interesting to understand how this all came about. Mm. That is in the uh, in the um, financial in the um, what do you call it? the Black Friday of 1929, 
in New York um, caused, as you know, the world economic crisis, which um, in Southeastern Europe had the effect that um, they could no longer export any agrarian goods and all these agrarian markets uh, sort of broke down. Um, and many, many peasants <clears throat> uh, um, had no other choice than to... Um, to take more and more credits in order to survive. So their situation deteriorated within a very short period of time. Um, and the old liberal world order did not function anymore from the point of view of these agrarian societies in Yugoslavia because their very partners who guaranteed this order, like France, Great Britain, the United States of America, uh, did no longer buy um, uh, agrarian products, or even if they did so in a large, they did so in a large, a smaller amount. Um, so, when Hitler comes to power in uh, Germany in 1933, um, he very soon drafts um, an idea <clears throat> of um, what Southeastern Europe means for Germany. And since Hitler has thought about making war. Um, against both the Entente powers in the West, but also against Bolshevik Russia, he must um, think how to make his country fit for such a confrontation. So what he tries to assure himself is to have um, Southeastern European states as loyalists of Germany and to make... Um, uh, to create a framework in which uh, um, Southeastern Europe... Um, um, delivers raw materials to Germany. Since these countries, after the world financial crisis, have no uh, foreign um, uh, valuta in order to pay imports with, um, uh, the Germans invent uh, the so-called clearing um, trade that is a, a, a non-monetary exchange uh, of German uh, industrial uh, pro uh, products against um, uh, Southeastern European agrarian products. And in this way, they draw Yugoslavia absolutely into their own sphere of interest, though Yugoslavia still formally belongs to the small Entente, which is was created by France. And in the end, Yugoslavia becomes so dependent that uh, they cannot do very much um, against German will, because the whole stability of the economy um, depends on Germany. So when in 1939, <clears throat> uh, the German side, the Yugoslav side, and the turn taxes side, or well, they start already in 1938, sit down in order to ne negotiate a final settlement of the turn on taxes case, um, it is absolutely sufficient if the German, when the if the Germans say, uh, well, if you don't do not, if we do not find a solution here, this will have very grave consequences for your country as such, and this is finally what works. And also oh, another important moment is that uh, <clears throat> in that very same year in 1939, Yugoslavia um, sort of federalizes uh, that this they create um, a Banovina Hrvatska. Um, a Croatian Banovina with um, a government of its own. And um, uh, this government uh, is also much more willing to to come to a compromise with the, with the Germans. Um, so generally, it's um, 
is macro politics uh, that uh, helps to resolve the situation. So you say the situation is resolved, um, but what happens during the Second World War and afterwards? It doesn't last, does it? No, um, that is, um, or it seems resolved um, uh, only in the light of the um, <clears throat> the agreement which comes into being in 1939, which means that turn on taxes can finally um, keep 65% of their original um, possessions. That is, besides to the to, uh, the 20% which they had been taken away in um, the early 20s, um, uh, they lose somewhat more, but then they get the guarantee that they will, no more will be lost and that they also get a compensation for uh, for everything that was taken away. Um, so the compensation is planned for many years in uh, ahead, so Yugoslavia does not have to pay this instantly. But then comes the Second World War, uh, and um, as you know, in the Second World War, uh, Yugoslavia is attacked in 1941 uh, by um, Hitler, uh, by Italy, and by Germany and Italy, and is dismembered. Um, and um, on the on the territory of what is today Croatia, um, but also Bosnia Herzegovina, a so-called independent state of Croatia is being created uh, with the help of um, Germany and Italy. Um, so this is a fascist state, which is sort of um, a close sibling to the Third Reich and to, um, to Mussolini. And one could expect that they um, that they help turn on taxes further to promote their own interests, because uh, they absolutely depend also on Germany and they have a similar ideology and so on. But this doesn't happen at all. That is, turn on taxes tries to use um, this situation with a new fascist government and a new state uh, now governing over their possessions um, to revise the 1939 agreement um, uh, to reach better conditions. But um, um, the Ustasha government doesn't do anything for, for um, uh, turn on taxes. And the Germans also, they say, well, we have other problems. We're now fighting the communists. We're fighting um, uh, to, 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 to help the Croats control these, ter these territories. This is difficult enough. So um, there was not, not, not much uh, German endeavor also on this case. The, um, there is a huge partisan movement of communist partisans, which develops in this um, independent state of Croatia. Um, and we also have sources that um, show that turn on taxes during the Second World War um, is hampered in, you know, doing normal uh, forestry business uh, because they're simply afraid of going into the forests where they might enter into uh, into conflicts with partisans which hide there, which are, well, which have arms. Um, and when the war ends... <clears throat> The situation doesn't become any better, though the partisan movement uh, now turns basically into the power structures of a new state that is of communist Yugoslavia. Um, and in the immediate um, uh, post-war years, <clears throat> the turn on taxes forests are completely expropriated. Um, and a part of the personnel of um, turn on taxes is either 
um, killed, repressed, or they, or they become also part of 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 this new power power structure. Because we have cases of foresters which um, were in conflict with Tornan taxes during the 1930s, when it comes to these issues with the forest expertise, and now they become parts of the communist um, Yugoslav state forestry administration. Uh, which is absolutely, you know, um, clear that um, uh, the rule of Turn and Taxis is over once and forever. <clears throat> well, in some of the for foresters of German nationality or of German ethnic ethnicity, just flee to Germany uh, so that um, um, already in the 1950s, Turn on taxes has nobody to work with, though they also they send an emissary, um, a certain Dr. Fischer, um, I think it was in 1955 to Yugoslavia and to these possessions to find out what is still there. Um, but the picture uh, this Fischer draws is quite deplorable and gives no hope um, of having the possibility to return. Um, <clears throat> so even today, the the Tunantaxi's family has no access to those lands anymore? Well, I write it in the very end of my book that um, since the, when it became clear that uh, Yugos, that after the breakup of Yugoslavia and the creation of the new um, Croatian state in 1991, um, uh, Croatia takes a turn towards the becoming uh, a member of the Re European Union which finally becomes true in 2013. But already prior to that, uh, in the 2000s, uh, and Taxis um, remembers these forests and says, well, if they want to go to Europe, these Croats, um, well, maybe this might be helpful for us um, to, to get a compensation for what we have lost. Because for the House of Turn and Taxes, uh, these possessions are are quite meaningful. That is, <clears throat> um, they owe uh, now about 25,000 hectares of um, land and wood in South Germany. This is what has remained to them. But they owed almost 40,000 hectares in Croatia. And... Um, also very large parts, like 30,000 and something in Poland and uh, another such proportion in Czechoslovakia. That is, um, they possessed far more in Eastern and Central Europe uh, than they ever had in Germany. Uh, they have no real realistic chances to get it back. Uh, but, you know, having... Just getting a recognition and an, and and a compensation for a part of what was lost is quite meaningful for the House of Turin taxes economically. Um, so what they are basically trying is to get back uh, to get the compensation for these forests. And what they do is they um, file lawsuits with local courts for compensation. And they also have a lawyer um, acting on their behalf in Croatia. Um, but as far as I know, um, uh, well, it, there were cases when the local courts um, um, 
found that um, use, that turnaround taxes should be uh, compensated, but these local courts only decide on 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 smaller proportions of the land, only on what is within their jurisdiction. But then the higher appellation courts um, uh, annihilate these decisions. Um, and I think that the new Croatia is um, like on the position, basically the position is not uh, fundamentally different from what was the position of the first Yugoslavia of the Ustasha. Mm -hmm. <laughs> basically also in a certain way of the communists uh, that um, uh, <clears throat> there should not be uh, something which looks like um, uh, big compromises uh, with um, nobles of the imperial period. Mm. Um, though, uh, as a as a member uh, state of the European Union uh, and as a country which um, is very pro-European ideologically, saying that they have always been Europe and so on, they have always been against the communists. Uh, they cannot, um, you know, um, completely ignore um, legal procedures. But um, I think that on the higher political levels in Croatia, there is um, uh, there is no will um, to to take uh, unpopular decisions, which are costly for the uh, Croatian state budget, uh, in order to accommodate a German noble. Mm. And and yeah, you can understand where both sides are coming from. Um, that's that's about all we have time for today. But thank you very much for sharing this really interesting story. It's not every day you get such um, you get to see inside corruption scandals from from the inside. Well, uh, thank you very much, um, uh, Roland, for for having this talk with me for uh, for ha having read the book. Uh, and having formulated such um, um, well, very serious questions, which just show that you are um, uh, that you really got into this book, and you know, writing it, I sometimes had the the impression that um, I was um, telling quite complicated stories to my readers, and I tried to make it. I was always afraid that I that it was not accessible enough, or that it was just too special to to write a book about this. But what was important for me was that these sources, um, in my view, give a unique in, uh, insight into um, what bribery really means for those who bribe and for those who take bribes, because usually this is something that happens in a very hidden manner that is never being written about this is never being evidenced and if it's scandalized it doesn't mean that it's well described but here i had the, the opportunity to find the sources of a house which was standing before um a litigation at, at the yugoslav court which started in 1935 where they wrote their own memoria for themselves about what had happened during the past 15 years, where they were not writing this as a self-justification for the public. They were just writing it as, as something to where they tried to understand, well, what they might be reproached of and what they really knew about what was going on. Um, so these were the typical these deep insiders um, sources. Um, which I found so unique um, because usually people who bribe do not take any notes about it. 
<laughs> for good reason. Um, so thank you very much. Um, thank you, Roland. Um, and I hope to hear from you soon.